You're listening to The Authenticity Show, where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Your hosts are Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Our guest today is Linda Palmer. Linda is driven by a passion to understand the human mind. She was a professor at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, where she specialized in the philosophy of Immanuel Kant. She's currently working as a neuroscientist in a research lab at the University of California, Irvine. She recently co-authored a paper detailing a new discovery about memory formation in the brain. Fascinating stuff. So we have Linda Palmer here with us on the Authenticity Show. Satch, isn't this really exciting? I am extraordinarily excited. Our very own neuroscientist. Well, thanks so much. I'm very happy to be here. Welcome to our show. So uh, you work at UCI? I work at UCI. Okay, I work yeah. in a neuroscience lab. Yeah, wow. Yeah, what is that like, working in a neuroscience lab? To those of us who have never stepped foot in a neuroscience lab. You know, it's funny because my background is, my, my dissertation is actually in philosophy. I don't know if they told you anything about yes. it. Yes. Yeah, Oliver said that you taught philosophy for a while. Yeah. Carnegie Mellon, right? Yeah, for five years. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, but, but I was a graduate student researcher in this lab. And when I was out at Carnegie Mellon, I was still collaborating with them. Okay. And uh, then I had a chance to come back and, and continue yeah. the work. So, wow. Um, so what is it like to work in a lab? You know, it's uh, like it's a lot of handling of rats and handling of undergraduates and yeah, yeah. designing experiments <laughs> and, and running them. And, and sometimes the undergraduates bite. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, they're actually mostly pretty good. Yeah, I'll bet they are. Yeah. They are. I'm not teaching classes anymore. Okay. Um, so uh, for me, that's nice to have this interaction with the, with the students. Yeah. So, um, so what, so what do you do, actually? Oh, well, for me personally, I, I'm an acupuncturist. Oh, no kidding. And uh, so I, I studied Chinese medicine, and then later I went and I studied occupational therapy. So uh-huh. what I do now is I run an occupational therapy assistant program. So I work in education. You what know. is occupational therapy, actually? Um, OT, it's a, it's a rehabilitation profession. So we assess and provide interventions for for function daily function so let's say somebody has a stroke and um now they need to relearn how to dress themselves and feed themselves and and we teach them how to do the things that are important to them that they need to do every day okay and i'm i'm also a part-time podcaster Uh, uh, apparently is is, is the other thing so yeah yeah do you know carlos's background i actually don't think i do yeah, so uh, I'm essentially a, a life coach. Uh, and, and no I kidding. Do, yeah, so I, it's primarily using hypnotherapy and something called neurolinguistic programming. Oh, I've heard of that, yeah. Mm-hmm. That sounds like really fun, interesting work. It, it's very rewarding. feels great. Yeah. You know, you get yeah. to have people walk in feeling one way and right, walk yeah. out like, feeling oh my God, completely different. What do I different. do? And like, well, you yeah. do this, this, and this, and that'll help you do, you know, what do you want, first of all? Yeah. I may have to drop you a line later. Absolutely, yeah. More than welcome. <laughs> that I, all I, sounds useful. I yeah. sent uh, uh, one of my graduates to, to see Carlos because she was uh, having tremendous test anxiety and she couldn't uh-huh. pass her national board exam. Oh, So, yeah. you know, they reworked a few things and she did great. You know, oh, got right, over it and, and scored very well, in fact. Yeah. You know, so, um, yeah, any sort of like mind slash emotional difficulty that somebody's yeah. having uh-huh send me carlos's way you know? <laughs> it's, it's hacking yeah it's yeah. just yeah. hacking yeah. the mind instead of you know a computer yeah we learned so many techniques for dealing with 
don't know. Yeah. Other things than the mind. Yeah. Right. So right. like we go out and run. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Well, and, exactly. and and that's um, one of the reasons why we we are talking with you and why we're interested in in asking you a lot about what you do because what you do relates an awful lot to what Satch does and to what I do in different ways. Wouldn't you say, Satch? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so many comparisons and connections. Um, can I just read the title of your of scientific paper? Because yeah. just this is just awesome. <laughs> So this is the paper that, that you wrote. Uh, Atypical endocannabinoid signaling initiates a new form of memory-related plasticity at a cortical input to the hippocampus. Yeah, that's right. That's a nice long <laughs> title there. Yeah. <laughs> Not sure what all that means, but that's pretty interesting. What is that about? Well, so... Why is it important even? Yeah, so here's the deal. Um, the hippocampus is... Uh, piece of the brain that's essential for memory encoding. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have heard of it in the, in the, in the case of this famous patient called HM, the guy who did, so he had intractable epilepsy. Oh. Um, this is in the middle of the 20th century, and, and uh, they went in and they took out his hippocampus on both sides. Um, it cured his epilepsy, but then he was left unable to form any new memories. Wow. So, yeah, it's a pretty tragic story. Mm, um, so if you look it up, HM, he's, you know, he's, and he lived for decades like mm-hmm. this. And... Um, so we know that the hippocampus is, is key to, to encoding a memory. And it's, it's also a really beautiful structure with, um, like with three separate layers. It's the trisynaptic circuit. So, so scientists mm. like to study it because it's so well-structured. Mm. And um, the neuroscientist I work with um, was one of the pioneers in figuring out how memory encoding is happening at the cellular level. Okay. So what's happening at the synapses between neurons where the memory is um, they now believe that memory is being encoded at the, at, at the synapses between neurons, where one neuron is sending a signal to another. If you strengthen that connection, the next time the signal comes down, you get a bigger response. Okay? Mm. So the way you strengthen that connection is by changing the, the shape of the, of the receiving side of the synapse. Okay. So it gets a little bit bigger. It, gets, it essentially changes its shape a little bit. There's more receptors exposed to the, to the neurotransmitter coming from the other side. And then you get, and this lasts, this happens in seconds, takes a while to consolidate. Um, so if you get hit on the head, you know, it might jar things up a bit and, you, and it might not consolidate. Yeah. Um, but normally it consolidates and then this will last for decades. Is this the, neuro, right? the neuroplasticity? That's the neuroplasticity, to? yeah. Long-term potentiation is what that's called. I don't like the term long-term potentiation, but that's mm-hmm. what the field has chosen. Yeah. So it's a yeah. long-term meaning it lasts for decades. Yeah. And its potentiation means that the synapse has been potentiated in the sense that it now responds more strongly to the, to the, to the input. Okay. Okay? okay. So yeah. long-term potentiation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that story has been, kind of, has been figured out over the course of the last 40 years. Cannabinoids have also been shown in other work to depress the release of the transmitters. Well, and so they do not strengthen memory normally. Right. right? In, most of the, in most of the places, it has, hasn't been known to strengthen memory at all. And what we found out, or did you want to ask a question? Yeah, actually, okay. uh, may I pause you just for a moment? Yeah. So just so that we're clear for yeah. everyone listening, um, what is an endocannabinoid? Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. What is an endocannabinoid? Um, so a cannabinoid um, comes from the word cannabis, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is no longer a dirty word. Which is no longer a dirty word, right? <laughs> um, and what constituents in cannabis do is they attach to receptors that are that are already present in your brain. So... For example, if you think of opium, right? Opium attaches to opiate receptors that are in the brain. And so cannabis is similar. It, 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 it sticks to receptors that are already present. And so an endogenous cannabinoid is the substance that the brain produces itself to stick to those receptors. Okay? Oh. So you can mess with the system by, by toking up, right? 
Okay. Right. Um, but it's produ- you're, you're producing cannabinoids all the time, normally. Really? Yeah, yeah. really. Now, now a, a question. Mm-hmm. Um, so endocannabinoids, the, mm-hmm. our, our inner Endogenous cannabinoids, right? yeah. Endogenous cannabinoids. Um, are they structured a little bit differently than, yeah. than exogenous cannabinoids? Yeah. yeah. So exogenous cannabinoids like THC, they're different uh, molecules, but they hit the same receptor. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they're similar, but but they're, yeah, they have, shaped a little differently. Exactly. Yeah. The key side is is enough similar that it'll attach to the same right, receptor, but it's not right. the same molecule. Right. Well, okay. Theoretically speaking, um, if you had sufficient endocannabinoids um, in your own system, would, yeah. would it produce a uh, marijuana-like high? You know, that's really interesting because I, I just came across a popular press discussion of some research that was being done that I'm not familiar with that suggests that the runner's high may be related to that. Interesting. And that's all I know. Well, so yeah. I would need to look into that and find out, okay, is that good research? Is that really what that research said? Or is yeah. the journalist, you know, twisting it a little bit? Yeah. Um, but yeah. It, it seems feasible. Well, yeah. I wonder, I mean, the phenomenon in hypnosis, which, uh, you know, that's my training, right? Uh-huh, right. Um, you can give someone um, the experience of being high or drunk or really any kind of drug they can imagine yeah. while in trance. And it's it's quite funny um, because it's it can last and then it, you can literally snap your, snap your fingers and it's gone. That's um, interesting. So there's... Come, yeah. The subjective experience of yeah, and, and it. And but do we sure. know what the what the neurochemistry of we that don't. is? We I don't. see. Yeah, I mean they they've been trying to figure that out for the you know the last I don't know maybe forty years they've been yeah. trying to figure out you yeah know, what is the what's going on in the brain when when yeah. someone is hypnotized and it, actually Satch just sent me a, a recent mm-hmm. article about it and they're they're figuring out all sorts of little pieces but they don't have the big picture yet they I just see. There's a lot of parts of the puzzle. Yeah, and so yeah. It's, it's too quick to make any judgments because any of the, the single um, uh, answers they've come up with don't really um, explain a lot of the phenomenon right. of hypnosis. About hypnosis, that's really yeah. interesting because people are super suggestible in it, right? Uh, when you're, yeah, when you are uh, in a trance, you're, yeah. more su- you're more suggestible for sure. But you don't have to be hyper-suggestible in order to go into trance. Most everyone will go in and out of trance uh, all throughout the day, and certain, yeah. certain conditions, if they're satisfied, will cause you to be more suggestible. Like, uh-huh. for example, if you're talking with someone you trust. Right. That's right. an example. Right. Or if you're very relaxed, or if you've had um, a drink or two, oh, um, yeah. or if you are um, feeling really happy and good about yourself and secure, safe. Those are all feelings that, that increase receptivity. So this yeah. isn't coming anywhere from from any of my professional background, but... But some of the things you were saying just then, would, is it possible that that kind of state can be something like the state that, that, that exists between a parent and a very young child? Yes. In fact, I, <laughs> okay. um, when learning about hypnosis and also when teaching about hypnosis, yeah. one of the things we talk about often is um, you know, you're kind of in a, um, a state where hypnosis is being used all throughout your childhood. So your parents are your first hypnotists. I see. Okay, and so that's actually a st- is a pretty standard idea in the field. That's really interesting because there's something is. different about the neurobiology. I'm not a developmental neurobiologist at all. Yeah. But I know that they that there are differences in the neurochemistry of, of you know kids. Mm. They have critical mm. periods. Yeah, they're learning so lot fast at yeah. that point and there's so yeah. much uh, brain growth and all that. But also uh, the receptivity to suggestion is very very high. So one of the things we remind people is rather than framing is so obviously some people can frame the idea of suggestibility in a negative way. 
uh-huh. as though you know you're. Well, it depends on what's being suggested. It's scary, <laughs> or maybe you know you're you're dumb because you're you're gullible. These are ideas that sometimes people will have. I see. And I have to to deal with some of those um, objections or concerns and dance with those concerns yeah, when yeah. I'm uh, working with somebody. Not I mean, everyone believes that. They're definitely vulnerable, right? Um, vulnerable. That's an interesting word. Um, you're not vulnerable if you're with someone trustworthy. No. Okay. Right. Yeah. yeah. But you know, we're yeah. always technically vulnerable to something, right? No, that's true. You can't yeah. avoid. I mean, you, yeah. you have to live in a, in an adamantium <laughs> bubble or something to, to to not be vulnerable. But is the hypnotic um, state typically remembered or not? Yeah, but it, that depends on whether you whether the suggestion is of an amnesia. Oh, I see. Um, that, that's part of whether or not it's okay. Yeah. If if there's a you know amnesiac. Yeah. suggestion then of course you won't remember that okay but then again you can that can be wiped away too i see i was it's think- very conditional it's yeah. it's your imagination so okay uh, in certain states your imagination sticks in certain states your imagination is very um transient uh-huh i'll describe um a learning state sometimes as hypnosis because in order to learn you have to make room you've got to be receptive you've got to yeah. um, imagine something very strongly you've got to take it on and taking it on is like receiving and accepting a suggestion. So there's really very little to differentiate uh, a true learning state from a hypnotic state. And for the purpose of teaching lessons and things like that, it's really advantageous to, to sort of say, hey, um, let's all get into a learning state right now. Can you That's remember when you were five yeah. years old and you were having fun right. uh, learning things and you were just so curious and you start evoking that imagery, you start to become more capable of understanding things because you're not doubting yourself anymore you're just you're not getting not getting in your own way yeah a little more playful and and, and then it helps you to remember because you're using more of your sensory systems to recall yeah Yeah. that's really interesting i mean the reason i asked about memory was because the um you know under a certain age children don't remember right that's it's it's a maturational Mm -hmm. process and they're so there is something different about well okay but in the normal normally you know you don't you don't have any memories from when you're one year old Right. Yeah, but you learn a ton, right? You're mm-hmm. learning how to yeah. speak, right? You, mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's amazing that how much um, children that age can acquire, and then it's and true. then it's a really interesting phenomenon that episodic, yeah. the ability to form episodic memories, kind of happens at a certain stage in development, and yeah. and and uh, you kind of wonder is there a trade-off between being able to absorb so much and become yeah. so skillful with it versus now, okay, I'm going to remember actually sort of stories about what happened. Yeah. Right. And, and, and we don't know, right? This is, this is under, um, yeah. you know, people are trying to figure this out. Yeah, there's so yeah. much we don't know. Because we had to pause and like, okay, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, talk about like, that. What are those? So Let's these go are, back to that. Yeah. These are constituents that. So your mind is, your brain is producing these endo- endogenous cannabinoids, uh-huh. and it was thought once they were sort of. First, they had they had to figure out that this was happening. Like, okay, these things are in the brain, and they found that they suppress transmission mostly. Um, so what this paper does is it shows that in one of the inputs to the hippocampus, it's actually plays a role in a new form of long-term potentiation that hasn't been mm. seen before. And, and it's kind of this crazy Rube Goldberg machine where, the, where the, the synapse change is now happening not on the receiving neuron, but on the synapse from the sending neuron. Wow. And it's, it sends the signal down to the synapse. It, the transmitter is released. 
the 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 receiving synapse now the receiving side of the synapse rather um, instead of itself expanding it's, it it creates literally just creates new cannabinoids sends those outside the synapse those travel back to the to the other side the transmitting side mm-hmm. cause it to change shape and now that's that transmitting side is a little bit modified so that it will release more transmitter next time wow and this, very interesting this had not wow. been observed before Wow. And the interesting thing about that particular pathway is it's believed to play a role in episodic memory. It's the lateral performant path, mm-hmm. the medial performant path, which really travels right along next to it, but doesn't show this new form of endogenous cannabinoid-dependent memory poten- potentiation, uh-huh. right, is, is dealing with spatial information. Okay. Okay? And the path that endogenous cannabinoids are involved in is dealing with the object information. So what? Are you looking at so where so you have to you have to integrate mm. where things are and also what things are, mm. and this pathway um, in a rat is carrying a lot of olfactory information because rats are very olfactory. Right. Um, in a human being, in your brain and in our bra- in my brain and our brains, it's carrying a lot of information from associative areas of neocortex. Okay. Um, and that's a little bit suggestive when you think about the the effects on creativity mm-hmm. that exogenous cannabinoids right. are believed to have right, right? like what right. is going on there yeah um you know it seems to mess with with your sense of time right which might be happening a little bit later in the hippocampus that stuff those those circuitries are still actually being worked out sure um but why does it have the psychological effects that it does and so this looks like there this might be one small part of the puzzle is what's going on mm. in this that is enhancing transmission and enhancing memory formation in this mm-hmm. one pathway into the hippocampus. Hmm. You know, it's interesting. I, I remember seeing a documentary about marijuana. Mm-hmm. And in this one experiment, they, they're they doing these various cognitive tests, you know, on, on, on you know, poor people coming in to, you know, <laughs> get this, this, this uh, cannabis vapor. And... Uh, one of the things that they found was that, yeah, obviously it does suppress your ability to, you know, solve problems and, you, you know, your, your typical types of, you know, thinking strategies and things. Yet when they had the person brainstorm like loose word associations and things, they were much more creative. Uh-huh. So, so it does inhibit certain things, yet in the language aspect, it actually enhanced their ability to you know, um, come up with to free descriptive aso- to words. To free associate. And, yeah, to, yeah, there you go. There yeah. you go. So it's, it's, it kind of sounds like a little bit about kind of what we're talking about here, yeah. you know. Um, Beatnik poetry. I there mean, you go. Yeah. Think about it, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. Wow. Reefer madness. So, <laughs> yeah. so the, um, you said the, uh, that, that medial pathway was more uh, space. That's right, yeah. And this is the lateral pathway that you're talking That's about. That's right. Okay. okay. So they're medial and lateral. Just, they're just sort of sitting next to, to each other in the, in the, in the right. hippocampus. And so okay. they had to name it something. Yeah. So they named wow. it medial so, and lateral. I mean, we're getting right down to the fundamentals of existence, space and time. And, you know, <laughs> Pretty right, much, there yeah. There you go, right there on the hippocampus. Yeah. Now, hippocampus yeah. refers to, uh, it looks like a seahorse, right? That's like the, the idea. The seahorse yeah. is, is the idea. That so, was the idea. Okay, okay very interesting. I mean, these, these people are, you know, taking apart the brain. Oh, what do we call this part? Yeah. I think my favorite part is called the substantia innominata. Wow. There's a part wow. of the brain which is basically called the unnamed. The unnamed. <laughs> yes. Wow. That sounds like, what is it, the Muppet um, phenomena? Or is that, what was that song? But not, no, it was menomena. That's what it was. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that was animal. Menomena. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> Great name. Animal is awesome. The hippocampus, is, is that, that's right next to the amygdala? 
Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you got your cortex curling around, and in a human, it's sort of down in the temporal aspect, mm-hmm. and it's next to the, it's, it's very close to the amygdala. The amygdala yeah. is a part of the brain that I'm particularly interested in. Me too. Um, so it's really, it's really, I think, best known for its role in fear. Mm-hmm. Um, there's yeah. a, the central nucleus, the amygdala, if you, if you, if you, you know, if you have somebody that's, that's scared or frightened, then that thing lights up. Yeah. And, um, the central nucleus has been very well studied. There's another nucleus that I'm interested in called the basolateral nucleus. So it's, all these things are named by their adjacencies, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's yeah. just sitting right next to the central nucleus. There's a, the medial, the central, and the, and the lateral and basolateral nuclei. Mm. And those guys actually have a different connectivity. The um, basolateral nucleus is really, it has a lot of connectivity with the frontal cortex. Okay. Yeah. Mm. And with oh. associative areas. Okay. Um, one of the reasons I'm interested in it is some work that was done by one of the, the neuroscientists that I work with some years ago, where she showed that rats who are learning a new task, it's a two odor discrimination task. Mm. And you put a rat in there and all he knows is there's a couple of odors. And so he's like, okay, whatever. And then he eventually realizes by messing around and just trying things out mm. that one of these odors is got a reward associated with it. Right. Um, and then once he's figured that out, you can give him paired odors and he'll learn it. He'll learn the, cor- the quote unquote correct one in one trial. Mm. But it takes a while to learn the task because you mm-hmm. can't tell him what the task is. Right. Yeah. So what what uh, uh, what Dr. Gall did was she looked at the rat's brain during these various stages of learning. So when the animal's just exploring the apparatus, when he's first figured out the task, like this kind of aha moment. Right. And then later when he's carrying out this 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 routine that he knows really well of, okay, this is the right one. Which one's right? Is, did I get it wrong? Did I get it right? He can learn it really quickly in, mm-hmm. in, when he's like well trained. And what she found was that the basolateral nucleus really lit up only at this initial learning moment, at this aha moment. Hmm. Really? Yeah. People study um, learning in rats a lot and other, you know, other animals with this rewarded paradigm because it's easy mm-hmm. to study. Like, you know, you know when the animals got it and usually well, they'll kind of ignore the training up to it. And then, mm. and, then they'll, and then they'll study with the animals when he's learned it and then can we interfere with that learning by giving him drugs or something. Yeah. But um, what Dr. Call was interested in was this moment of initial learning. So I'm interested in that, that state. Um, but the, the work that I've been, try- I've been trying to extend that by looking at, okay, what about learning without a reward, mm-hmm. right? Sure. Because yeah. I think most of, you know, most of the learning that people do isn't rewarded immediately, at least. Yeah. And people do yeah. stuff, people, people explore, and actually rats will explore and try to figure out what's going on, even if they aren't expecting any reward or any immediate reward. Yeah. So we built this kind of complex little arena, and we put a rat in there, and um, he's got a place he can hide, so he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to be scared. And uh, they'll come out and, and check it out. So they'll explore this. And so we've been looking at their exploration patterns. Um, and you find that, you know, once they've learned it, they sort of, s- they slow down their exploration rate. That's how you tell they've mm-hmm. learned. Okay. And we found that this, this arena that we set up was too complicated for an, a, rat, a lab rat to learn mm-hmm. like, very quickly. It took him like four days to figure it out mm-hmm. with 30-minute sessions. The issue, though, is that lab rats, you know, they, they live in a box, right? It's, mm-hmm. They have food and bedding and water and other rats in this little cage, but there's no spatial complexity in there at all. Um, so they've, they've lived in kind of a relatively impoverished life. What we did was we made an enriched environment for these animals. And uh, after one week of enrichment, they learned this new arena in just one session. Yeah. Um, wow. So we were, we, were, we were pretty happy with that. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And so what I've been doing is looking at their exploration patterns. And what we found was that the enriched rats took the space that they encountered and they broke it up into smaller pieces. 
okay. um, that overlapped less, which sounds almost too good to be true. Like they're, they're yeah. adopting this kind of divide and conquer strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you look at, at Descartes' discourse on method, like he recommends this. Right? Okay. <laughs> Take okay. your complex problem and break it down into, the sim- you know, into simpler parts and solve each of those yeah. separately. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. This seems to be a really fundamental strategy mm-hmm. that at least mammals um, yeah. will, uh, will adopt once they're faced with complexity. But they need to have some past experience in order to be able to do this. It's a different situation, mm-hmm. but they're taking something they've learned in the past and applying it to a new situation. Mm-hmm. And so my question is, do we see the basolateral amygdala activation in this context? And I don't have the answer to that yet. They haven't mm-hmm. witnessed it? or I haven't been able to test the brain activity in that region yet. Oh, so I did show that it shows up, the hippocampal pattern did show up. So it's, we we're very pleased to see that. Um, but whether or not the basolateral, whether you get this aha signal in this unrewarded situation, yeah. I don't know yet. Okay. Well, and that's what I'm really interested in is do we have this internal signal mm-hmm. of re- a s- internal reward kind of? Mm-hmm. It's not really a reward, an internal, yeah. um, you know, to be anthropomorphized, right? It feels mm-hmm. that way, mm-hmm. right? You figure out a puzzle. Mm-hmm. It feels good. What's going on there? And um, yeah. uh, my hypothesis is that there's a feeling of your mental activity, and when it fits, then you recognize it. Yeah. Well, we all know that it feels good to oh, yeah. figure things out. Doesn't it? It yeah. feels good to master your environment. Yes. Okay. It feels yeah. good to go into a new place and I, like, I don't know what I'm doing here and I figured it out today. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I survived my first day at my new job mm-hmm. and I feel good because tomorrow I'm not going to be as scared. One of the things that makes a human a human is we have an innate drive to explore our environment yes. and to master our environment. Yeah. And... It does have a very real, you know, uh, association with survival. Yes, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's really smart to master your environment. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's so, really interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't yeah. thought of it in terms of, of mastery, but of course that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exploration, learning, but also it has that angle of like, okay, now I know what's yeah. there, and I can, I know what to do with it. Yeah, or which, what I can do with it. Yeah, which is was sort of like when when you said that you gave an, an enriched environment to those rats. Yeah, and they mastered it quicker. That's right. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Because, you know, that maybe they're like, this place is awesome. Let's master this and make this cool place our home. Yeah. You know, maybe there's yeah. something to that. You know, mm-hmm. I, 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 if I was a rat, it's interesting how, would, well, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're clearly motivated to, to check things out. Yeah. You know, and they, they yeah. seem to enjoy it even, you know, before they've learned it. Yeah. And I, I, think, I yeah. think we have to be that way in order yeah. to, uh, to go out and explore and learn and be receptive to new things. Right. That's just so fascinating that there's a part of the amygdala that isn't involved with just fear. You know, like we learn yeah. uh, just through popular articles and whatnot that, you know, about the quote unquote amygdala hijack. Uh huh. Amygdala, amygdala hijack. Amygdala hijack. Amygdala hijack. Right. <laughs> you know, we talk about that a lot. Right. We, we, it comes up a lot because basically it's something that you know, most people recognize, you yeah. know, road rage or um, intense fear, you know, yeah. uh, fight, flight, or freeze, that whole yeah. thing. That's the um, central amygdala. Oh, okay, and those yeah. those the, the, those pathways have been pretty well studied, actually. That's pretty neat. Mm-hmm. Mm. But, but yeah, absolutely. but also the, you know the idea of uh, recognizing something. You you were mentioning that, and it kind of clicked for me when you said that, um, because for the purpose of avoiding danger, you yeah. would need to have the recognition, and that's partly what malfunctions sometimes uh, when oh, when yeah. it's in the wrong environment, like when yeah. you interpret. Um, well, you have generalized anxiety or you have this amygdala hijack, quote unquote, right. um, that happens because of a situation at work. And it's, it's not a bear attacking you, you no, know, it's in not. your camp. Yeah. It's just a deadline for, for something you have to get yeah. done. Yeah. But you're experiencing this intense fear in that part of your 
um, your brain's lighting up because of yeah. that and you get locked into this loop where you're um, sort of looping back and not accessing your prefrontal cortex and all that good stuff to, to get control yeah, that makes and to have sense. problem solving and instead you go into this sort of physical response when the physical response is really not what you need you right. need a, a mental cerebral logical rational right. response that's very yeah. interesting because you know these brain regions are right next to each other right and then yeah. there's a lot of crosstalk between central amygdala and basal lateral amygdala. i mean they they're communicating with each other but it's there uh, there are other projections that are different listening to The Authenticity Show, where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Your hosts are Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Up next, Carlos and Satch continue their conversation with Linda Palmer about neuroscience, the philosophy of Immanuel Kant, and Buddhist meditation. Stay tuned. scientist that I work with has developed a drug called ampokine. Mm-hmm. And the target of that drug is the receptor system that is the basis of the excitatory transmission in your brain. Okay. And so the ampokine enhances that um, excitatory transmission. And what they did was they took rats and they, they damaged the um, motor system on, on one side, the, like in the striatum, which mm-hmm. is controlling movement. And what, they, what these rats would then do is they would, they would move in circles. Because the dopamine was driving one side, but not the other. Not the other. Whoa. Right? Right. right. Okay. So then they took those rats that had had this one-sided damage and gave them ampokine, and they found that their animals were able to control this circling. And so the hypothesis was that the frontal cortex, now sort of being given a little bit additional charge by this ampokine, um, was able to to exert control over the lower brain system that it wasn't quite able to to accomplish. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. But it sounds like what you're talking about is training people to do this um, sort of voluntarily. Right. right? To, 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 yeah. to, Taking um, advantage of the neuroplasticity yeah. and retraining. Yeah. yeah. And getting, strengthening their frontal cortical control yes. over, the, yeah. over the ascending, over these modulatory systems that are, Absolutely. that are trying to make them do something else that maybe isn't um, helping them out. And it's all the, the hacks to make that happen because yeah. you can... You can know that you should do it and you can think about it, but that's yeah. different than actually interrupting the cycle and doing the, the methods that would you know, cause a, uh, an actual cognitive shift in your experience because that's what's marking that out for the person so that they can repeat it. Uh, that's it interesting. It creates a pattern, you know, uh-huh. like a new groove or a new yeah. um, you know, pathway. That's, the that's idea. fascinating, yeah, because knowing that, I, I should or want to do something is really different than knowing how to do it. It really is. That's right? why and knowing um, how is, is a matter of establishing these pathways and strengthening them. Yeah, which is why um, often, um, you know, standard psychotherapy isn't as effective at, at making those types of changes. I see. Whereas um, things like brief therapy, which are more focused on making changes and focused on, on a result, those uh, methods um, are more developed for creating a change. Did, Rather you, than say, just did you say brief therapy? Yeah, brief therapy, things like uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, oh, okay. hypnotherapy, okay. neurolinguistic programming, EMDR, um, uh-huh. things like that. 
Oh, interesting. Um, even know, EFT to some degree. Well, well, one of one of my favorite ones that that I learned from you uh, is just like a simple reframe of of like anxiety. Oh yeah. So like if I'm a little out of breath and my heart's pounding, so I'm oh, scared, yeah. Yeah. and Carlos basically you know gets me to a point where I realize that I wouldn't be scared if I also was out of breath and my heart was pounding because we were jogging. Right. Oh my gosh, how interesting. Or having sex with your lover. Right. And enjoying it. (laughs) Right. And then all, there you go. You did it again, darn you. Yeah, I love it. Thanks. I'm not scared. I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. And so then what happens is it's it's almost, it's almost like it causes your, your frontal cortex to go, oh, I have control again. Mm. You know Uh what I mean? And and it's just like, you're kind of like, oh, that, that I was interpreting that same sensation this way. And I didn't realize I had a choice. I yeah. could choose to interpret this other way, and now it doesn't bother me as much as it did. You yeah. know, yeah. it's fascinating. It's, it's amazing really how much ideas can have uh, that kind of power. Yeah, and like, yeah. how does that actually work? Is something we'd like to know. Just naming yeah. something sometimes, you know, they, they've shown that over and over again. Just naming the feeling rather than just feeling like you have an overwhelm. Uh-huh. Um, it causes you to go from general to to more specific. It gives you a moment of cognitive, like a perception of of power over that. I see. Yeah. Thing, you know, um, you know. That reminds me of the old concept in mystical traditions that that you know the naming a thing gives you power over it. Mm. That's a uh, that's very old, yeah. oh, I love old that. concept. Yeah. Like you yeah. know, there are there are all sorts of old stories of you know Egyptian you know sorcerers and magicians and having the the power to name and and if you could find their secret name then you would have power over it. Mm-hmm. Well, that uh, whether that's metaphorical or mystical or whatever in in modern times when we talk about um, being able to name the thing, it actually gives you a moment of control over it because you you're no longer just in this generalized anxiety you've got you know what i have this specific feeling and and it gets a different part of your mind working on it than right. the, than the part that was experiencing the overwhelm yeah that's very interesting so yeah. it, it shifts yeah. things so just naming it can be useful oh, that's, that's interesting yeah huh i wonder if that's related to what you were talking about earlier with the children developing them their sense of yeah. self and the ego yeah and how they are then maybe develop the ability to control their emotions a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder about that. You know, it's a fascinating thing, you know? Well, I just think that if I was in the pitch black and I was hearing a sound or feeling something bump against me and I didn't know what it was, <laughs> uh-huh. I'd be terrified until I realized, oh, that's just my dog. <laughs> right. You know, so right. that's so, a great you know, analogy. Is it? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I've been at yeah, night I mean, at, um, uh, like a hot springs, you know, and you know, or not hot springs, I'm sorry, just like swimming in a lake or something like that. I was going to say. Yeah, (laughs) there's really not much living in a hot spring, but but in in a lake or something like that. And when you feel something (gasps) unexpected, like a fish, or a piece of seaweed or something, or or, or growth of some kind, it could be alarming to you. Right. And then you realize, oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) It's just just X, Y, or Z. Yeah. Oh, good. It's not a gigantic squid coming up to pull me down. Yeah. Yeah. Oh boy, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, I think there is a power in being able to identify. Um, and we know there's a flip side of that too. Sometimes we can take it too far and maybe be attached to a diagnosis maybe, or, yeah. you know, like I, I've seen some clients, uh, not know what's wrong with them. And then when they get a diagnosis, they're so relieved and they feel better uh-huh. because they have a diagnosis. Now yeah. it's named. Yeah. And then sometimes you see the opposite end of that where right. somebody's like, well, I can't learn this because of my learning disability right. or oh, because of my yeah. dyslexia. It becomes be- a limiting belief. And then it becomes a limiting belief. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it could be good or bad. One of my favorite analogies is, you know, a knife in the hand of a thief is different from the knife in the hand of a surgeon. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So naming something 
you know, or having an idea about what something is, we still need to be mm-hmm. wise in which choice we have. Are we going to choose it in a way that's going to help us? Or are we going to make the choice that's going to limit us? Mm-hmm. And that's you a know? judgment call so, every time, right? Yeah. I mean, basically, all your concepts are trying to help you organize and understand and deal with the world. And uh, they, have, they have that, that dual. I mean, I think that's, I think that's inevitable. Right? Mm-hmm. They all have that dual nature of, okay, it helps me organize it. I can relate it to other things. But every time I apply a concept... I'm I'm losing the particularity of, of mm-hmm. whatever it is I'm dealing with, right? Yeah. So it's very powerful, but it's also limiting. And so it's about um, adaption and flexibility, right? I mean, if if you if you take the analogy of a bi- bicycle or or a car, you know, you have different gears that are set up to help you in different ways. Yeah. So there are times when you know chunking up to a very abstract concept would be really right. useful, and there's definitely times when being very specific is useful too. You know, yeah. being able to change though and adapt to your environment and and the need and all that um, becomes key. And to pay attention to, you know, what the details maybe you would have missed. Yeah. And are they salient now when maybe they weren't, mm-hmm. you know, last time yeah. or something? Um, the kind of sensitivity and openness is, but it's something, I think it's something that you can cultivate and uh, it's helpful to, to be aware of the issue, I think. Yeah. Being a neuroscientist, ha- how has that affected you, like personally, like in your own mind? Has that affected you? Like, do you do you think of yourself differently because of your work? You know, that's interesting because I've been in it so long. I don't. I, it's hard for me to answer that. I mean, I guess sometimes you think about your emotions in terms of okay, yeah, I know this is a bunch of chemis- chemistry, sure, right? <laughs> yeah. But you know, we knew that. Uh, like, yeah. Okay. You yeah. know. I'm, it's really right. it's really fun to go for my bike ride and I'm enjoying it. That doesn't yeah. It doesn't it doesn't it doesn't make it any less any less fun or any less beautiful to sure. think of it as a bunch of chemi- chemicals happening. Yeah. The chemistry um, of love is still very powerful. Yeah. I mean, it's it's <laughs> yeah. still it's still real, right? Right. Um, right. At, at at the level of experience. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't think that makes it any less valid. Yeah. Um it, you know, it's interesting like if you think about the the so we don't we don't really have an, a scientific ex- explanation for consciousness, um, we just don't we mm-hmm. don't know we don't know what it is we don't really know how it's produced, but we're working on it. Mm-hmm. And some people mm-hmm. think we may never be able to do it. Um, may, maybe the brain is really too complicated for the brain to understand. That's a possibility. Or maybe mm-hmm. it really isn't explainable. I I don't think that's true. But there are, are people who, who believe it. Yeah. Um, and it, and and I can't say they're wrong because we don't know yet. Right. Right. Um, but if you look back in history, the example of, uh, of, of life, like we understand the genetic code, right? We understand how reproduction happens. Um, we understand how life is built out of chemistry and physics in a way that, you know, a couple hundred years ago, we just didn't and really seemed like it would have been impossible to explain life in terms of these lifeless things. And now we're like, well, no, we, we see how that works, mm-hmm. yeah. right? And so my prediction is that we will one day understand how consciousness is built out of non-conscious things. Um, I, that's my prediction. I'm, I, I could be wrong. Um, but I don't think that's going to remove any of the magic of it at all, any of the, the joy or wonderfulness of it, any more than understanding how reproduction works right. uh, reduces the joy that people take in their children. Right. You know, and, right. And, and or it, the it, act it, itself. It, it, yeah. Uh, that too, yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Let's be real. <laughs> you don't stop Fair enjoying enough. sex just because you understand that it's all about sperms and eggs and genetics and you know. It's, well, I don't. Yeah, it's a sure. different. It's a different. Uh, it's a different matter. So you yeah. know, when you ask the question about like as a neuroscientist, does, does it change how I experience myself? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, 
I don't, maybe not. I don't yeah. know. I mean, it's good to know. Sure. So, Great and, answer. And yeah. honestly, the main thing we that you figure out is like, there's so much more that we don't understand yet. What's, what's that ball tossing back and forth look like? How did it's that happen? funny. I, I actually started out in computer science. And um, I was interested in artificial intelligence. And in those days, artificial intelligence was this, this thing called blocks world and schema. It was very logic-oriented. And I, I, I remember being an undergraduate and taking these classes and being like, I don't think this is right, you know? So what, I, what happened was I ended up taking, taking a philosophy class and I think my last my last year or last two years, and I fell in love with Kant and his theory of of how the mind is um, constructs the world, and in particular the idea that the imagination isn't isn't just something we use to sort of represent what's not there, like oh I'm going to imagine you know mm. a party balloon or something, right. but is actually involved in all of our perception. Right. So his claim is that the the imagination takes in the sensory material and arranges it in space and in time. And then the understanding puts that under concepts, and that's how you have recognition of what's what's in the world. Um, so he separated out these two these two these two functions, and then the concepts are arranged hierarchically. And um, that we that we ourselves are looking for this structure of where things fall into classes, and some, and then those might fall into further classes. And this is something that that is sort of built into the mind that this is what it's looking for in the world. This kind of network idea. Was, was something I really liked. So I started to pursue philosophy. And then in my very last year, I took a class called Models of the Brain. And that was a class in computer science. And there was a, a, a guy in, in CS who was collaborating with these neuroscientists. And then I had a problem because I, I loved both. Uh-huh. And I'm deciding what to do in graduate school. And so I ended up getting into graduate school in, in philosophy. I decided to do philosophy because I wanted to learn how to write. And uh, I turned out I really like writing about arguments. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, but my idea was that I would do a dissertation on Kant and on neuroscience. And uh, when I, I ended up doing only a dissertation on Kant because the Kant guy that I started to work with, who was great, I was very fortunate to, to uh, work with him, was a guy down at San Diego. He just laughed at me. He said, no. <laughs> There's no way. And you he was right. You can't. Actually, I can't do both Kant and neuroscience in one dissertation. So what I did was I wrote my dissertation on Kant, um, and I worked as a graduate student researcher in the neuroscience lab. So I was able to sort of do, do both, um, even though it was uh, quite a long time before I had publications that talked about both. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I was trying to understand the mind, yeah. right, and how the, right. how the mind... I've always been interested in the idea of representation, and how does representation happen? What are the conditions of representation? What does it even mean to represent? Mm-hmm. Right? How yeah. is it that one thing stands for another? Mm-hmm. Right? Like yeah. that's a very str- if you think about it, that's, that's a, symbolic. Yeah. That's a weird. Yeah, that's symbolic. a weird thing. Like what does it mean to stand for something else? You know, why wow. does this collection of letters mean that word? And why does that word mean that that kind of object? Yeah. Um, or yeah. what is it that you know consciousness is going on in your head that makes you build this this you know this world? Let's represent this yeah. world. And so those are the kinds of things I was thinking about. 
Very interesting. Uh, wow. You know, when I was 20. <laughs> well, you know, it's very interesting. And, and uh, this will be f- a, f- a fun story to tell with you here, Linda. Um, I've told you the story, I, I believe, Carlos. Um, it was when I was doing um, one of my Vipassana meditation courses. And it was my second course. And I got up about, you know, five in the morning and I was in the meditation hall. And it was cold. And I'm just meditating. Mm. Sounds like a like a like a great course. It was great. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> uh, you know, ten days of meditation, and uh-huh. you know, so it was my second course. I'm sitting in meditation, and it's early in the morning, and everything got so peacefully still. I was so still; it was just like a stillness that you can't even describe. Yeah. And the heater came on in the room. <laughs> the heater comes on, and for maybe. A few seconds, I noticed my brain creating an image of the entire room inside my own mind. And it dawned on me, oh my God, what I think is the room is not real. Yeah. Huh. My brain created an image of the room. Oh, yeah. And I witnessed it for just a few moments. Oh, that's wonderful. And then, of course, it went away. Huh. You know, I, I lost it as soon as I had it. Yeah. But that was a very, very interesting and intriguing experience that I had to wow. see my own brain create an image and then present it to me as though it were real. Yeah. And so I knew for a moment that that actually wasn't real, but it did represent something that was real. See, that's, that's wonderful. And, you know, and if the, it would be hard to function to, to actually do anything if you had that, that stance all the time, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so, you need it. Yeah, you can't yeah. sit there and... But, uh, meditation all the time. Yeah. That's pretty cool, actually. That sounds that sounds uh-huh. that sounds really Kantian. What you just said. Yeah. Actually, well, it reminded right? me of your paper. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're constructing uh, I, this reality out of the materials we're given. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was it was very interesting. So um, so I think uh, Kant was right, and a lot of the stuff he said is based upon what I experienced in meditation. Yeah. Oh, right on. Then. So you know, all three seconds of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I don't like I said. I don't think you could live there very easily. Um, no. But yeah. So the, the Dalai Lama came to speak to the Society for Neuroscience some oh, years cool. ago. Maybe, it was maybe, I don't know, five or ten years ago. And um, one of the things he was saying was that, that, that in his tradition, it was, it was, he described it as being kind of like a science approach. Like, Absolutely. we're trying to find out. This is not dogma. Yes. This is our hypotheses about how the world works mm-hmm. and about how the mind works. And he was telling the audience, like, you guys, you know, should study this. And uh, I think mm-hmm. since then, there's been a lot of, of work done in neuroscience, like people yeah. with fMRIs looking at yeah. meditative states. You know, these are very different approaches, mm-hmm. of course, right? But, but um, it was really interesting to hear his, his description of, of that tradition as being an exploratory one, one that was posing hypotheses right. and trying to look, to look for answers. Yeah. Um, it, it was different than a sort of Western idea of what, sure. what a religion consists in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, it helped me see my mind create the image of a room yeah mm-hmm. you know yeah. i mean th- there's something to that yeah you, know? you might enjoy hearing the uh buddhist meditative philosophy of mind and body i think so very interesting so what they say is that the mind works like this uh, you perceive something from the senses mm-hmm. and there is a part of your mind they, they don't talk about brain they talk about mind sure right? there's a part of your mind that that perceives that they have a name for it sanya sanya is to perceive something there's a part of the mind that can perceive okay then there's another part of your mind that comes just a moment later which is recognition 
Uh, so there's yeah. perception, then there's recognition, yeah. right? So then you you recognize that oh you know I'm perceiving something oh that's an image of a person oh that's that's a female oh that's that female right 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 based upon previous learning another part of the mind creates a pattern of sensations that sort of ripples through your being in okay. response to your recognition. I see that actually comes after the recognition. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So you perceive, then you recognize, then you create sensation. Then they say that the mind will then um, sort of reflect that sensation as pleasant or unpleasant. Uh huh. Okay. And then based upon whether or not we've decided it's pleasant or unpleasant, we'll create a reaction, a judgment, a reaction. So you perceive, you recognize, you create a pattern of sensations. You read your own sensations as pleasant or unpleasant, and then you form a reaction. That's interesting, the separation between the sensation forming and the interpretation of that as pleasant or unpleasant. Yeah, yeah. And it's also interesting that the yeah. that this sensation ripple happens after recognition. That's, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, it's, it's a, and, you know, and until I knew about that, I didn't notice it. But then I started to notice it very clearly I when see. I was looking for so it. So you, like, you can actually make happening. this conscious. Yeah, yeah. And these, these stages in, in perception. Yeah, I mean, they mm -hmm. happen extraordinarily rapid. Right. Right. So you, you have the illusion that all of these things are happening at once. Right. But through the meditation, they've said, no, these are things are happening in this order. Yeah, the, the, the normal, usual state of consciousness is that it all happens together and you see it as one yeah, sort of yeah. one thing, right? And huh. this is... The idea behind the concept of misery, right, is that if I have a pleasant sensation, then I crave that. If I have an unpleasant sensation, then I have an aversion to that. Right. And you're stuck either craving or having aversion. Uh -huh. And that creates an unsettling experience. And yeah. so um, the, the meditation is that you have a third choice, which is observation. And you can retrain that habit pattern of the mind to not react so strongly to craving and aversion. I see, right? yeah, yeah. And, and so it, it brings up this idea that the source of your happiness, the source of your misery, is not external objects. It is your reaction to those objects. It's not this thing outside of me. It's how I react to that thing. Yeah, that makes that, sense. That dictates my, my happiness or lack thereof. Yeah. The, at the end of your paper on Kant, <clears throat> you said, finally, two key implications of Kant's account are, we must encourage respect for what is as of yet unformulated, what is not measured, and we must recognize the importance of goalless, unconstrained exploration and play. Yeah. Tell me more about that. <laughs> so the argument in this paper is that the sort of formulated cognitions that we have, all the things that are sort of fixed and known, came about originally through an unconstrained exploration. They weren't given to us. We had to discover them. And in order to have discovery, you need to be able to, to look without knowing in advance what you're going to find mm. or deciding in advance what kind of thing you're looking for. If you have this kind of openness, then you can, then you can make new connections. 
and you can discover things that maybe you wouldn't have predicted. You need to have this openness so that you can discover really what's out there. So that's one side. And then the other side is that the, the respect for what's unmeasured. Like before you've discovered the answer, say, to your scientific question, um, before you've formulated the hypothesis, you have to be sort of messing around and playing with what you haven't formulated yet. Okay? And uh, that means that there's going to be this stage of, I don't know. And we have to allow people to feel comfortable with that in order to go to be able to move through it and then discover what it is that they don't know. Um, and I think it's the case that, you know, little kids have that, you know, they're, they, they go out, they explore, they, they, they don't know, but they're willing to, to look around and it can happen that people grow up and become kind of rigid and forget like, no, it's okay to not understand. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to, to not know the answer. Have they stopped um, playing? And they, yeah, to stop playing. Exactly. Play is a really good, a good word for it. So mm. I think play and exploration are really closely related. And play is a play is um, oftentimes a goalless activity, right? You're playing, You're and yet you learn mm-hmm. so much from play. Exactly. Yeah. If you look at the time of life where you're playing the most, it's also the time when you're learning the most. That's very interesting. Yeah. 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 And there's in, in yeah. Sweden, I think they they're um, they've changed a lot of the way they structure. Uh, free play and, and the amount of recess that kids get and things I've like heard that. heard about and that, And they do yeah. way better yeah. in their studies because they're yeah. allowing so much play. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, I think that's, that's the, the U.S. education system has, has unfortunately gone in the opposite direction. Yeah. And I know, I know that, um, like, for example, um, talked to some people from uh, in Japan like 20, 20, 30 years ago would admire the American education system because it encouraged creativity in a way that the kind of rote learning that they were... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that was the traditional way, um, didn't. And so I think, you know, I'm, I'm hoping we can kind of back off some of the direction we've gone now, like you said, and maybe go to more towards what they're doing in the Scandinavian countries. Yeah. And it's encouraging to see this kind of recognition coming out. Um, uh, you know, on the flip side, I want to say also that you need a balance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I want to encourage unconstrained exploration and play. Um, but there really is also a place for for discipline and like, okay, now I'm, I, this, is, this is my goal and I'm going to work towards it and I'm going to take these steps. Mm-hmm. Right? You really want to be able to be flexible and have both kinds of activity. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does. Yeah. I mean, it, play, play is un, unstructured and it's, it's motivated um, from enjoyment yeah. and exploration and you know, work may incorporate some of those things, but it's always with a goal. It has a purpose, a specific yeah. purpose that may benefit you when you get it done. So you need work and play. I mean, you, if you didn't I, I go, so, you know, yeah. let's say you're, you're, you know, providing food for your family and you need to hunt or you need to, um, gather berries and fruit and things, that's, that's work. Yeah. But you also need play. So but without the work you would need. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, you guys, you guy and gal are, <laughs> are talking about occupational therapy's basic foundation, which is, that, is right? that life has a balance of work, rest and play. Uh-huh. Those three things. We could even add leisure. We could say work, rest, play, and leisure. Play and leisure are a little bit different. They're That's similar. Interesting. Yeah, they're they're similar. Um, or we could for for leisure, we could maybe say recreation. You know, mm. um, I we, see. Because yeah, because leisure recreation could be very organized. Could be very structured. Right. right could be right. very structured. Yeah. But, but the word recreation, we may have talked about this, Carlos, is is rooted in the idea that recreation means the recreation of the capacity to do labor. Mm. Oh wow. So even though you're doing an activity that you have to spend energy to do, it recharges your battery. 
Yeah. It's like an alternator, yeah. you know, it's, it sort of, you know, recharges your battery while you're going, yeah. you know, you sort of need yeah, that. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and part of the problem is that we confuse rest and play as one category. There's work and yeah. there's everything else, but we have to have work. We have to have rest and we have to have play. Play is very rejuvenating. And I think play is so important that our genetics are not messing around with it. <laughs> they mandate it. Yeah. So they give yeah. us an intrinsic motivation to play because it is so important for our development and our learning yeah. that, that so we're not screwing around with this one, guys. We're just going gonna to mandate it. It's a genetically, yeah. intrinsically motivating thing that you have to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, but don't, um, don't you see sometimes that people also confuse play for work in the sense that um, when they have to win and they're competing and it becomes, you know, an avoidance of being a loser, quote unquote. I don't want to lose. I've got to win. Um, that mindset can create um, work out of play. Yes. Yeah, you know, instead of just enjoying getting better at what you're doing, right? And you're out there, you know, tossing the ball back and forth, or whatever. You're moving the chess pieces along the board, or whatever it is yeah. you're doing, um, yeah. or even um, competing to write the best poetry for your class or to paint the best picture totally. for your school or whatever all of that so yeah. you, you can create not that competition is bad i'm not suggesting that i'm just saying that there can be a point at which um the pressure that you put on it and the goal gets in the way of the fun and That's interesting. you're no longer I, doing I it totally out of agree. the pure yeah. enjoyment of exploring yeah and I, enjoying i i think you know to sort of um echo what you're saying the human nervous system has the ability always at any time to enjoy playing for the sake of play yeah and we need to remember we have this ability this is a skill this is a superpower that we all have yeah we can just play for the hell of it and it is so rewarding to do so but you know we, when you're fishing we, you're doing it for the hell of it though yeah for the hell of it that's right <laughs> that's very different so Linda, this was a fascinating conversation and uh, it was absolutely lovely to have you and to uh, share all your wonderful insights. Um, so thanks for being here. Thanks so much. It's yeah, been well, a real pleasure. What a great conversation. Thanks. Very fun talking to you guys. Yeah, thanks. Right, likewise. Look forward to next time. Me too. You've been listening to The Authenticity Show with your hosts, Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Very special thanks to our guest, Linda Palmer. The show is produced by Oliver Altine. Our theme music is composed by Oliver Altine. Remember to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our website, AuthenticityShow.com. Thanks for listening, and have an authentic day.